Uh, what I'm going to do is something that a few of you have heard before. I know uh, Lisa's heard it. Uh, I think Eric has heard it. Uh, Charlie and Sydney might have been. It's uh, Jude's benediction is what we're going to look at today. Well, you guys weren't with us then, okay? So we're going to look at, at verses 24 and 25 of Jude. So if you want to turn there while... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. <coughs> If you're familiar with the small book of Jude, 25 verses, um, written by one of the earthly half-brothers of our Lord, uh, he began his letter setting out to talk about the believer's common salvation. But then as he began to contemplate writing, he says, I had to take a different direction. I had to talk not about our common salvation, but about about false teaching that had crept into the church unnoticed. And he makes a call, a very clear call for all believers, not just leaders, but all believers to fervently contend for the faith. And the word translated there, contend, actually means to fight, to struggle for the the faith, the faith that was once delivered to the uh, saints. In the first uh, five to 16 or so verses, he, uh, he points out painting a portrait kind of what a false teacher looks like. And then from 17 up to the beginning of this benediction, he uh, talks about um, and admonishes really the believer to actually contend for the faith. <clears throat> In some of those verses, he says that we are to remember the words of the apostles, that we are to both pray for and build one another up in the holy faith. We are to keep ourselves in the love of the Lord. We are to wait on the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have mercy also on those who doubt. Um, and we are to even strive to save others as if snatching them from the fire. And then he closes the letter out, really returning to the subject of the common salvation. One commentator said that uh, in verse 24 and 25, Jude's contemplation, our Jude's contemplation of the beauty and the wonder of all that we commonly share in Christ, his description is doxology, doxological rather, and as such we find Jude finishing his letter in the exalted prose of prayer and praise. So Jude 24 and 25, the last two verses, that is uh, often called one of the best and richest benedictions or doxologies found in Scripture. Jude 24 and 25, Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. These two verses are probably the best known and most quoted of this, of this entire epistle, this 25-verse epistle. They really are Jude's final words on what Christian living should look like, and actually what is. 
And um, just his, uh, one commentator said his cap on his teaching against false teaching and what we hold to to stand against that false teaching. Because he begins with, he who is able to keep you from stumbling. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's the only one that will also present us as believers faultless before his own glory. In the closing of this letter, what Jude is doing here is underscoring God's preserving work. We are to persevere, right? We're commanded over and over again through Scripture to persevere. But really, Jude is reminding the believers here that it's God that actually does the persevering. In Christ, we are going to persevere. Would you say that doxologies are relatively common throughout Scripture? Those of you who are students of the Word? They are very common. Um, Each of the books, of the five books of Psalms, Psalms are divided into five books. Each of the five books actually ends with a doxology. Psalm 41 verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19 say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89 52 says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And Psalm 106, verse 48 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. And all of Psalm 150 is pretty much a doxology. Psalm 150, the writer says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's almost the whole book of Psalms is a praise, right? A praise or a prayer back to God. They're also found throughout the New Testament. If we had time, we could go to each one of these. But a sampling, um, Luke 2, verse 13 to 14. Luke 19, verse 35 to 38. Romans 11, verse 36. Romans 16, verse 27. Ephesians 1, verse 3. And 3, verse 20 to 21. Philippians 4, verse 20, 1 Peter 5, 11, 2 Peter 3, 18, and Revelation 1, 6. What's the purpose of a doxology or a benediction? Just praise to God. It's a closing praise to God. A closing praise to God. Or a praise back to God, maybe, might be a better way to, to look at that. Um, those of you who have read the book of Jude and, and see all of the and have seen all of the things that Jude painted these faults, the portrait Jude painted, painted these false teachers with, and how he commended to the believers to stand against this false teaching, 
contrast that warning regarding the apostasy of these false teachers with the doxology that he brings is intended really to bring a comfort within the the midst of the believers that Jude was talking to, there was persecution occurring. Think about several of the the shorter epistles at the end of the Bible, 2 Peter, Jude, um, and uh, even 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John talk about false teachers. Those short epistles all talk about false teaching. Jude is ending his short letter talking about false teaching with a uh, encouragement to the believers. Yes, there are false teachers out there. Yes, you've got to contend and fight for the faith, but our God is faithful. Our God is going to keep you from stumbling. So this should be viewed by the believer as a great reminder of the faithfulness of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God in in all of this. Particularly two points he, he we should glean from these two short verses One, that God uh, preserves us in our salvation. God preserves us in our salvation. And two, God will ultimately present us as blameless before his throne. So God's the one that preserves us in our salvation. And God's the one that will ultimately present us blameless, excuse me, before his throne. So in in the very beginning of verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... The term to him who is able um, is pointing to God who is perfectly faithful, who is supremely powerful, and who is infinitely loving. And he will not allow his true followers to stumble. To stumble into what? Sin. Or some commentators said apostasy. Either one is, is a good thing to point to, either stumbling into sin or stumbling into apostasy. If you're a true believer, he's not going to let you go. You're not going to be able to, if you are a true follower of Christ, fall into false teaching. You might potentially have a season in life where you su- submit yourself to some bad teaching, but you will not ultimately fall to that bad teaching if you are a true follower of Christ. <clears throat> He's able to uh, keep his children from falling or, to def- or defecting from the gospel. He's not only willing to preserve the believer, he is able to preserve the believer. He not only desires to preserve the believer, he has the ability, he has the power, he has the sovereignty to actually preserve the believer to the end. In John chapter 6, uh, John records... Jesus talking about God's sovereignty and how God secures all who believe. Turn to uh, John 6, verse 35 with me. Read from 35 to 40. John 6, uh, verse 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I also say to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that sentiment is repeated again later in, in John 6 and also in John 10 and in 1 Peter verse 3 and several other places throughout the Gospels. There are, and in a number of Paul's letters, there are also testimonies to this power of God and this power of perseverance, perseverance of the saints and God being the one that actually does the, the persevering um, or gives us the power really is a better way to look at that, to persevere. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, same phrase, now to him who is able, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. If we view this from a pure human perspective, how can we get this wrong that God's the one that does the persevering? If we're just thinking about it from what we experience here in this still fallen world. We think we do it. Is that true? Not at all. There's very little that I actually that I actually control. One commentator said, from a humanly perspective, he actually wrote that from a humanly perspective, (laughs) the path to salvation or heaven has always been perilously full of dangers. And it is, to a degree, right? Um, how, How does Peter describe Satan as a lion? Roar, uh, that's going to and fro. What's he trying to do? Devour. Devour. So from, a, from our perspective, that's often what we can see. But what Jude is trying to remind these believers of that are in the midst of this persecution is, from God's perspective, this path to salvation in heaven is safe. It's safe. Because we serve a God who is able. We don't just serve a God who, can't, who desires. We serve a God who is able to preserve. Not We don't preserve ourselves, but God does the preserving. God is able to keep us. Now, does that mean we participate in no way in this keeping? No. We call it progressive sanctification is is generally what we call it as we become more and more Christ-like. What's our role in progressive sanctification? Number one is obedience. Number one is obedience or submission. Both both are are synonymous here. Obedience and submission to what? The Word. The Word. So in order to do that, in order to obey and submit, I have to know the Word. So our part most definitely is studying and learning. Because if I don't know what God has commanded me to do, I'm going to be very confused. And then I have to submit. Because in our humanness, as Lou reminds us, we want to do it our way. We want to, we want to think that we can control things. But we have to realize that we can't. And that we, 
must submit to God. We must submit to his authority. We must submit to his word. But in doing all that, I have to learn. I have to study. If I don't know what God intends for me to do, I'm not going to, I'm going to be very confused by, by what's happening to me in the world. Um, do we have to be here today? Do we have to gather like this? Yes and no. Yes and no. What does the writer of Hebrews say about the assembly? Do not forsake the assembly. Why? Why do we need to be here? Accountability is one of the major reasons why we need to be here. John says in 1 John that um, the Holy Spirit will teach us, right? So we don't need another teacher, right? So why are you sitting here listening to me babble if we don't need another teacher? Because we're also commanded to teach. We're also commanded to sit under sound teaching. What's your role in this today? What should you be doing today besides expositional listening? What, what should you be doing? Worship. Worship. This Part of this is worship, absolutely. But you should be examining this word to make sure that what I'm saying is true. Don't take my word for it. Your responsibility in listening, in the expositional listening you should be doing, is to examine what I'm saying and make sure what I, what I say is true. Don't just take my word for it. <clears throat> the word to keep, you know, we've, I've repeated that several times. The Lord will keep us. He is able to keep us. This Greek word to keep is a translation of a military word, and I won't try to butcher its pronunciation. But it means to guard or to watch over. And what Jude is reminding the believers is that it's God who is standing guard over their salvation. It's God who is standing guard over our salvation. Psalm twelve seven, David wrote, O Lord, you will keep them, you will guard us. O Lord, you will keep them, O Lord, you will guard us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7 to 9, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Waiting on our Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Sustain you to the end. He keeps going. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is able to keep us. God desires to keep us. God is able to keep us. And he's going to keep us from stumbling. Stumbling into sin or stumbling into apostasy. John uh, recorded in John 10 that Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. He continues, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So in Christ, Christ keeps us, and the Father keeps us. So we are able to stand because God makes us stand. We are able to not stumble because God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. 
The Son's infinite love to the Father ensures that he will keep those whom the Father has given him. And the Father's infinite love to the Son makes certain that he will protect those he has given to the Son. So both the Father and the Son are the ones that secure the believer. But Paul adds in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is also a guarantor of the uh, of the believer's salvation. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory of his. So the Holy Spirit seals us and is our the guarantee of our inheritance until we actually see that in glory. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit is given to the believers as a proof of salvation. Um, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the Lord's. It's the work of the Spirit in the lives of us that confirms that we are truly regenerate. Paul also says in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We've been adopted into God's family. We are now God's children. We are also assured of that by the indwelling Spirit within us. We could spend a whole bunch of time going over passage after passage after passage that affirms that, but we don't have um, until tonight sometime, so... uh, a few that we could point to would be in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 11, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, Hebrews 7, verse 27, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 to 9, Ephesians 4, 30, and Philippians 1, 16 are all places where this same thought is, uh, is taught by the uh, writers of the Word. One commentator, after got to this point in his commentary, posed several questions in light of this truth. Some of those questions uh, he wrote were, is it conceivable that in spite of all of this, that Christians may still fall away and be lost? He answered, no. Is it possible for God to predestine us to holiness and yet we not become holy? He answered, no. Can he adopt us as children but then disown us? He answered, no. Is the human will so strong that it can overcome the divine will? He answered, no. He even said to that last one, surely not. Um, He asked, what more does God need to say to assure us as his believers that he will keep us unto the end? Does God need to say anymore? We just have to trust. As the old hymn goes, we are to trust and obey, to trust and obey. So it's God that perfects us. It's God that confirms us. It's God that strengthens us. And it's God that establishes us who are his children. And it's God that will accomplish his purpose in our lives. It's God that will bring us to completeness. completeness. And it's God that actually picks us up often and sets us on firm ground when we do stumble when we do fall down, but we will never fall completely in away from God. In MacArthur's commentary here, he writes, To be sure, the doctrine of eternal security does not mean that people can live in patterns of unrepentant sin and still be assured of heaven. 
Because if you lived in a pattern of unrepentant sin, John says in 1 John, you might not be. You might not be. You should test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Eternal security is not a license for sin. For that matter, we who truly believe would never view it as such since we have been given a new nature. We have put off the old and we've put on the new. We have been given a new heart. Uh, The heart of stone has been ripped out and a heart of flesh has been put in. And so in that heart of flesh, every time I do sin, every time I do stumble, I should be convicted. The closer my walk is to Christ, the more rapidly and with more pain is that conviction. Those who make a profession of faith but then fall away into lifestyles of sin reveal that their profession was likely never really genuine. But those of, us, thus, those of us whose faith is real, the security of salvation is a joyous certainty indeed. So in Christ, we can be secure in our salvation. Um, does that mean we're perfect? Does that mean I don't? sin. No, no. That's why there are provisions within scripture for what to do when you sin. What is, what does John say in first John? He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, what's he going to do? He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but we have to be honest with ourselves. God already knows, but we got to be honest with ourselves that we have sinned and that we have violated God's standard and come before him with a repentant attitude. <clears throat> and that particular passage is not talking about a salvific forgiveness. That's talking about a forgiveness of sin of a believer. So God presents us um, in, his, in the presence of his glory. God presents us in the presence of his glory. Jude goes on to write, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the hallmarks of saving faith is that it endures to the end. And we could go to several passages that, that would support that premise. The phrase to present you is a translation of a verb, and again, I won't try to pronounce it and butcher the, the pronunciation of it, but it's a translation of a verb that means to set, to present, to confirm, or to establish kind of think of it, just take a moment to contemplate this. Right now, today, in Christ, God has set you. God has presented you. God has confirmed you. And God has established you so that you can stand in the grace of God, in the presence of God. For a non-repentant believer... For a rank pagan to stand in the presence of God, what would happen? Can't. Can't. Sin can't stand in the presence of God. Sin can't stand in the presence of God. At present, we are established to stand in God's grace. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
this standing is also projected in the future. In the future, we will actually stand in God's presence, in God's glory. Paul says to the Colossians in verse three, excuse me, chapter three, verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him where? In glory. When Christ appears, Christ, who is your life, appears, you will stand with him in glory. And Peter writes in First Peter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, our life here, James says, is but a vapor, right? And James also says we're to count it as joy, this suffering we are, we're suffering. Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you go back and you view some of the the great men of faith, uh, when um, Isaiah considered his own sinfulness in Isaiah chapter 6, he called a curse on himself. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, fell down like a dead man when he considered his own sinfulness. And then you know Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, trembled in fear at what they saw. Remember even Peter when uh, he was in the boat fishing and Jesus was there, after they hauled in this great catch, he turned to Jesus and said, get away from me. Get away from me because I'm evil. He realizing the weight of his sin and that's how we should view our sin. Even though we're saved, we should still view our sin with that much weight. But we realize that in Christ, God is able to make a stand. So we don't have to tremble. We don't fall even in, in God's glory. We can stand in God's presence, uh, Jude says, how? Blameless. Blameless. We're able to stand blameless. In Revelation twenty one twenty seven, John makes it clear that the unrepentant sinner cannot enter the glory of heaven where he says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That word blameless means to be faultless, to be without fault. It also points back to a word used in the Levitical sacrificial system of the kind of sacrifice the Israelites are supposed to bring before God. So God commanded in that system, what kind of sacrifice were the Israelites supposed to bring? An unblemished, a perfect, as as best as they could, a perfect animal to be sacrificed. It's also used of Christ's blamelessness in 1 Peter 1 verse 19. It's used of our blamelessness here in uh, Jude, but also by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, in Philippians chapter 2, and in Colossians chapter 1. All referring, all of these passages referring to a blamelessness that's only available through Christ's finished work. That's the only way I can be blameless. It's the only way you can be blameless if we're standing in Christ. If God is viewing us, and one guy would often say, if God is viewing us through Christ's blood, stained glasses. So if God's viewing me through Christ's righteousness, through the blood Christ shed on the cross, then I can stand blameless. If I'm outside of that, I can't. I'm not blameless. 
I am still in my sin. I am still uh, condemned before God because God's wrath is still on me if I'm not in Christ. In glory, when Christ returns and we join him in glory, will there be any fear? Will there be any tear? Will there be any trauma? No, there won't be anymore. Those will all be gone. The presence of God at that point will have removed all of those things. We'll have removed all of those things that are a result of the fall and that we still experience because we're still in our fallen flesh. Our flesh is yet to be redeemed. Our soul has been redeemed. We're a new creature in Christ, but as Paul says, I'm still in this fallen tent. <clears throat> he goes on to say uh, that we'll be blameless with great joy. And really, that's looking forward. That's looking forward. One commentator said it's an eschatological setting. It's an end time, end time setting. And he pointed to Revelation 22, verse 3 and 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads forever, and night will be no more. They will... No, excuse me, they will, there will no, they will need no light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So as Jude ends this epistle, he offers uh, more praise for the present salvation, but also for the future glorification of the believer, saying, to, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. So he's turning around now, reminding the believer in the first, in verse 24, of how we stand, of who keeps us from falling. And in the verse 25, he's turning that praise back on God, who is the only God through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. He is the only God through Jesus Christ who is our Savior. And he says, um, <clears throat> to the Lord be glory. What is meant by glory? What do we think of when we think of God's glory? His majesty, but keep going. What's rep? Power. His holiness. His holiness. And if, uh, if we were to go down and list all of God's attributes, holiness is probably the one that best describes all of them. And that's the sense in the Greek word here is God's holiness. And he points to that because that best describes all of God's attributes. Then he says, <clears throat> majesty, be majesty. And the root word for this word is great and it signifies God's absolute rule, God's absolute sovereignty over everything. And then he points to dominion, and that refers to God's might and God's active rule over all that he has created. And then he says authority, and the word authority here comes from a Greek term that means God has the freedom to act, God has the ability to act, God has the legal right to act, and therefore, God has the absolute power to act in any way that he so desires. So in his authority, he has authority to do whatever he wants. 
and it's him that decides to do what he wants. But it also points not just to God the Father, but since he prefaced this with Christ and Christ's work, it points to Christ's supreme right to do it as well. Christ's supreme right and privileges to do as he wills. And it really points to the divine supremacy of the Godhead that encompasses everything, or excuse me, that is supremely uh, over everything in the universe that the Godhead has created. He created it. He has a right to rule over it. He's supreme. He has actually the legal license to do all of this. Because he is powerful, because of his glorious name is at stake, God's promise to preserve us, his saints, excuse me, and one day present us blameless before him should be trusted. Because of who God is, what we have already witnessed that he's done, what has been recorded in his word that is done, that he's done, we should trust that without any reservation whatsoever. And then the phrase before all time and now and forever refers to eternity past, present, and future, covering all the ages that God has created. God's character and promises are sure and trustworthy, not just for today, but for yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And because of that, where should our trust be? In Him. And in Him alone. Our trust should be in Him and in Him alone. We must receive him as Savior, and we must follow him as Lord day by day. If we, sh- we should deny ourselves, Christ says we're to take up our cross daily and follow him. It is he who, who is to be trusted over every aspect of our lives. We must follow him by faith, praying in the power of the Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, by receiving his mercy and by having compassion on those who have gone astray, as Jude said in, in um, a passage earlier, even as if snatching them from a fire. Jude's closing should remind us of who God is and who we are. Think of that. should remind us of who God is and who we are. Too often in Western culture, we reverse the roles We elevate man and we lower God. In reality, I'm way down here and he's way up here. Infinitely so, way up here. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Questions? Comments? I know it's kind of short, but thank you guys.